0: I'm really happy to be on call with you today. I'm excited yeah. to talk about your company, Diamond Age. Yeah. Uh, you founded, co-founded. Uh, yep, yep. Really cool company taking a fresh spin on uh, an industry I've been covering for three years on YouTube, 3D printed construction. Uh, yep. My, You can see up there it says automate construction. So yep. when I see new parts of the job getting automated, that gets me even more excited. So to hear you guys have... 27 different attachments that you're using on your gantry system or you hope to use i saw that was the initial plan you have yeah. at least a handful of them in action already mm-hmm. uh i don't even know where to start
1: uh <laughs> um well i you know it, i think <clears throat> the easiest thing to start is is one you know uh, my wife and, and i watch you we always check on youtube and we're watching netflix and stuff and just say oh what's jared got going on so you know do appreciate what you're doing for people out in the field and i think the The biggest thing we look at this is that um, there's a lot of people in the field doing a lot of hard things, right, which take a step back, housing needs to change, right? Hard things to build houses these days, not enough labor costs, all of that fun stuff diamond age, you know, in in the way Jack Oslin and I, my my partner, and then my other partner, Paul Clark, and a couple of other co-founders that uh, I might talk a little bit about, looked at this and said, look, um, we got to build houses and houses haven't changed since, you know, people say 100 years, but if you go back and, and I think the thing for us is you go back to, like, Levittown, right after World War II, and most builders know about that, you know, on Long Island, big first true, like, master-planned communities. um, You put those people in a time machine from 1947, 1948. You bring them to an existing job site. A DeWalt is a little bit different. You know, a Bostitch nailer is different, a laser level, and an iPad. But by lunchtime, they'll be a pretty functional crew. And by the end of the day, they'll probably be craftsmanship level work going on from those people if you had that magical time machine. So, to have people transported 70 or 80 years into the future and take four hours to get up to speed, says stuff hasn't changed.
0: Yeah, that's interesting analogy. Uh, and I, one of the other fascinating parts of your company is your history at Tesla. Uh, mm-hmm. They're like the king of automation uh, historically. So your role there, you were a, a production director?
1: Yeah, you know I was, tesla's a funny story i've been in factories my whole life and mm-hmm. uh i have been watching tesla for a while so i got a chance to go work for them in in 2014 kind of really early in the model s launch and i uh i was asked to go and fix kind of operational engineering for powertrain which was about 30 percent of the value of the car so motors batteries chargers electronics cabling and um went in there and and pretty quickly put together a killer team and uh and turned that around pretty quick did that for almost a year and a half um until the beginning uh well i i turned the engineering around and then uh, the guy who brought me in this this amazing guy uh guy will just give props a guy by the name of andy hamilton who's now working with jb Straubel at redwood materials um andy was the director that hired me um they asked andy to go fix another part of the factory and andy asked me to be the director of powertrain so i did that did that for about a year and a half. So that was about 1,500 people in the powertrain factory. And then um, there's a bunch of staff changes early in the Model X launch. And uh, Elon asked me to go run the S and X assembly, which I did that for him. And we got that up and running. We uh, put out a lot of cars, kind of hit the quarters we were supposed to, and then um, asked me to launch the Model X. I'm sorry, the Model 3. Um, so I took my team, and I had a pilot team build the first few hundred model at threes and then with the manufacturing engineering, the design engineering, all the people there—it's a giant team environment um, helped to roll out the three. And then kind of that was my time to tap out. You know, Tesla is is very intense environment and uh, fun. Like I made some amazing friends. I learned a tremendous amount of stuff and, uh, you know, really just helped who I am as a manufacturing leader. But it's a uh, it's a very big life commitment to be in Tesla that deep, and uh, so I decided to tap out like uh, end of 2017. But uh, it's really interesting. So I worked directly for Elon for a while. Um, you know that's fun. He's amazing. Taught you a lot. You know, but he will kick the crap out of you every day to make you better. I and mean, that's why he is who he is. You know. So people at Twitter are learning that. But uh, you know, I, my thesis is never bet against Elon. Never.
0: <laughs> yeah that sounds incredible and so uh we don't have to dwell on that too long not it's super interesting to me my one question about it would be is the perception from the outside true is it really uh in engineering like or is it a special place for engineering where it's different than the other companies
1: around oh, the world absolutely yeah yeah and, and i think the the easiest way to say that is is Elon and, and all the teams around him have the ability to attract amazing talent. And when you mm-hmm. attract amazing talent, you know, th- that, that, rising tide raises all boats, you know, you've got to be good. And if you're not good, you get gone pretty quick. But, uh, so you, you're going to work with some of the best people you've ever worked with and, um, you're going to do some really hard things. So, yeah, it definitely is different, um, you know, it's been, like I said, so I was out of there late 2017, right at the end of the year. So it's been going on almost five years now since I've been out of there. I still know some people in there, um, you know, and uh, and they still continue to do incredible things. You know, that's as is, is good and as bad, like any big company doing lots of painful things. Um, some people are going to have a bad experience. Some people are going to have a good experience. But, you know, at the end of the day, um, I never served, but we have a ton of veterans on the team. And, and you talk to these vets and the Marines and the Navy and the Army guys, and they all say, everyone hated boot camp till the day you graduated boot camp then it was the best thing you ever did right so yeah. you know then and one of my co-founders a guy by the name of Paul Clark he says it all the time. he's like Tesla was a great place to have worked <laughs> so it, that's that's about as much we talk about that but we do have about seven or eight co-founders here that all came out of uh, my time with Tesla and they were all in the trenches uh, we were all in the trenches together so when we rolled this thing up that was the the team we picked to roll it up.
0: Yeah, there's a certain, I guess, team bonding experience just from giving it your all and staying mm-hmm. late hours. Uh, and it's something that maybe is rare these days when there's less life-threatening situations in the United States. And, uh, yeah, it's a it's a special thing. And so with Diamond Age, you started the company in – I heard about it first, like, maybe a year ago, six months to a year ago. hmm uh, but how long were you operating in stealth mode before that?
1: Well, uh, we started this in, in 2018. So, um, yeah. you know, the, the, kind of the origin story is, is my, our CEO. So I'm CTO Jack's, Jack's our CTO. And then, uh, we've got a couple of the other co-founders in critical roles. Um, so Jack, um, and I met my early days at Tesla actually, uh, rented a room from him and his wife they were trying to put their uh step uh, his stepdaughter through grad school so uh living in the bay area you know most people know how expensive it is so jack was rolling a startup living the startup life spending his own money on his own startup and uh so i uh, i ended up renting from them and uh, and they're amazing people and they just treated me like family and you know they would invite me down for breakfast on sunday morning or if i walked in at nine o'clock at night jack would hand me a beer and then like here's half a steak from the fridge, eat. And I uh, just started talking about engineering problems, and he was rolling up a company called Plenty, which is uh, one of the biggest indoor ag, um, automated agriculture companies that Jack had founded. And, uh, and we just kind of got talking around the kitchen table about engineering and kind of bonded over that. And I helped Jack with some early engineering problems and brought in some of my friends that I knew that could solve some problems and did a bunch of work to get um, Jack's thesis and some of his early stuff um a little tighter for him and uh you know and it, it just became kind of a bonding thing and as I as I I lived with them for about 10 months and then Jack and I just kind of became fast friends and we'd always talked about doing a startup and did I want to go work for plenty but I was in Tesla at the time but anyhow you know 2017 came I left Tesla I went and built drones for a while for a pretty interesting company and uh, Jack was always whispering in my ear hey there's, there's something out here and, and we tried a couple different exploratory things but um jack kind of created the housing thesis you know he had uh, he had kind of a, a life-changing conversation with his uh his son talking about moving out of the bay area because they couldn't afford a house and his son was a recruiter at one of the big self-driving shops and his uh, daughter-in-law was a nurse practitioner at one of the biggest um, research hospitals on the uh, other side of the bay i'm not going to talk about companies but they're they're an amazing couple and, uh, Sounds and like they, they should be able
0: to afford a house with those jobs
1: a hundred percent in any reality except the Bay area. Right. So, you know, that kind of, that kind of was Jack's call to arms. And and we started really talking about the housing thesis and we saw what some people did like super early icon work. And uh, we started looking at housing and we said, Hey, people are onto something here. And, uh, and and Jack was smart enough to kind of take us and say, look, let's go talk to people. And we spent about six months on a listening tour. And we went and talked to land developers and structural engineers and architects and materials people. And all the conversations were, you're crazy, but that might work. And, uh, you know, so we kind of rolled with it. And, it, you know, it, it got a little bit of momentum. We, uh, Jack put together a business thesis. I pulled together a technology thesis. And, you know, we kind of beat the hell out of it and said, how do we make this work? You know, you're going against the biggest industry in the world. You know, Jack had already conquered agriculture in his last startup. And the only thing bigger than agriculture is construction. And, uh, so did that and, uh, you know, finally said, Hey, I have been building drones for about a year and some amazing founders, a really amazing company. It just, just wasn't the right fit for me, you know? And, uh, so I was like, all right, time to jump out of that. And, uh, we both threw some money into checking account and self-funded this thing. And I went to all, the, all my compatriots at Tesla that, uh, you know, I kept in contact with and said, look, guys, we're going to do something really crazy, going to spend a bunch of money. And uh, we rented a shop, bought a bunch of equipment and started experimenting and all my uh, all the all the folks from Tesla, you know, did uh, did a bunch of help, uh, a tremendous amount of work with us, you know, and they got paid in, in beer and scotch and Red Bull and chicken wings and uh, did that for about two, two and a half years. And we came up with a working prototype. And uh, and shop that around to some of the venture capitalists in the Bay Area, and finally hit with a couple of uh, really impactful companies, and uh, launched uh, launched that funding, and that allowed me to take all the people and convince them that hey, Tesla's amazing, but come do this, come be a founder, and and I had quite a few people um, from that Tesla time that said yeah, let's go do this, and that's where we got the uh, that's where we got the funding, and we rolled up and built that first prototype house and all of our equipment and proved out all our tech through uh, the end of 2021. So
0: at that point, some of the other guys on your team, Jack, they had other startup experience. Mm -hmm. It was your first startup?
1: Uh, Well, I worked at, uh, you know, the drone startup I worked at. I got in there and it was pretty small at the time. Not as a founder? Not as a founder. No, no. no. I worked Mm -hmm. for the founders. The founders are amazing guys, but uh, like I said, we just... Wasn't a right match. And that's you know, when, when it's when it's small and you're, you know, I was a manufacturing leader for them and it's small and you have to have really, really good alignment, which was, you know, I had lived with Jack, so I knew him pretty well. All right. So we knew we got along. And uh, and then the, the folks that uh, that had come in from Tesla and a couple of the other companies in the early team, um, we had all worked together. So you uh, you know you get to know everybody's what the fudge face, right? And when something breaks or it's two in the morning and it doesn't go right and I'm stomping around going, what the fudge? Uh, everybody knows, all right, give him five minutes, he'll calm down, and then we'll go solve this problem where if you just kind of meet people and, and some founders just kind of randomly meet and you don't know people's reaction when times get tough. But everybody that had worked at early, early Diamond Age, the sub-10 people, we knew each other. So we all knew idiosyncrasies, we knew people's abilities, and all of those abilities focused on everybody could weld, everybody could machine, everybody could design and CAD, pull electrical wiring. So we were all we were all builders. Jack was mixing concrete, you know, we we did everything ourselves and we continue to do everything ourselves. So that was that was the key, is that early team set the culture and we're kind of a culture of builders. Like everybody we hire has hands-on, you know, to the machine. Um, There are no department managers. There are no directors. You know, we're already growing pretty decent size, but everybody's intimately connected to the work. And uh, and that's that's how you you roll a a startup that can move this fast.
0: So it's a similar organizational structure to Tesla, like flat organizational structure.
1: Uh, Tesla was, from what I know, like I, I worked with a lot of people that were at the San Carlos days in my early 2014 and 2015. I would say, you know, and, uh, and it's, it's probably punching up, but I would say we're kind of like that Tesla San Carlos phase where everybody was super connected to the work. Um, once you get big, you know, you start getting into the thousands of people. Yeah. You know, when I was at Tesla, you know, there was five levels of leadership um, that I had to steer below me. Right. You know, you had line leads and supervisors and associate managers, managers and senior managers and directors. It's like you have to be that big to, to run a company that gets to be 20, 30, 40, 100,000 people. But, you know, in the early days, I wasn't there, but I worked with a bunch of the people that were at San Carlos. And, it uh, you know, it seemed like they had it really tight and really well done of connected and really capable people. Yeah, that's great. And it sounds like
0: from your experience, you have the most uh, you're the most I guess tried in the scaling up of the manufacturing. So now that Diamond H has printed a couple homes, you're probably looking towards,
1: okay, how do we get 100 printers? And that's what you've done before, right? Yeah, I, I, just by the fact of being the oldest. Uh, save for one other guy on the team, um, yeah, I have the most experience. But like before, I did Tesla. I did factories all over the world, and you mm-hmm. know, built built dozens of facilities and factories. So and scaled them. And that was all fun stuff in, in packaging where, you know, you're making five, six, eight million pieces a day. So that's, that's given us good perspective. And some of my early founders came from similar backgrounds, but we have, you know, my, uh, you know, our, our kind of operational leader, Paul, he's one of the early co-founders. He's an amazing home builder. The guy just lives and breathes home building and, you know, second generation general contractor. Funny story went to you know, Cal Poly and said, I'm going to be a mechanical engineer. I don't want anything to do with the home building business, graduated and immediately bought a home building business. So, but I was able to pull him out of the home building industry and bring him into Tesla and, uh, you know, and a a bunch of the other people. And we have, um, you know, some of my folks on my software team. We just have a a pretty amazing spread of people. I've got the guy who writes our software is, uh, you know, he's a Navy nuke. He was running nuclear reactors on aircraft carriers, and he was one of the youngest Officers ever in the in the nuclear navy, which is an incredibly smart assemblage of people. So to be one of the youngest ever to hit his rating, you know, smart capital S underlined bold and italic, and you know, it's a guy by the name of Adam Hoke. He's uh he was working with me at Tesla, and we had mechanical engineers extraordinaire that all of them Tesla. So um you know, all came together. Like i said, Tesla was a an amazing aggregator of talent, and uh, you know, but at the end of the day, everybody said, hey, this is great, but we want to be able to say we built this from the scratch, you know. So those those original ten people um, just really have set the kind of tone, that culture, and the heart of the company in it. And it's it's been really fun to mirror that. We're building and we're getting pretty decent size right now, and and we've seen that continue to mirror that. Everybody we we bring in is uh, is someone who's done something hard in their career, so it's fun.
0: Yeah, and I'm sure when you get started like Tesla with the Roadster, you're not Mm -hmm. making everything yourself from the get-go, but you're using what you can and figuring out what are the first things you wanna make yourself that you can improve. Ultimately, I guess you guide towards making everything yourself. Are you making things like the stepper motors yourself already?
1: No, so we we build, we build everything in house, but again, I'm not going to go gearboxes, stepper motors, logic controllers, network cards, things like that. So all of those things are bought off the shelf, but we build our own electrical cabinets. So we design and build and wire, um, all of our electrical cabinets. We build our own wire harnesses, you know, but no, no point. There's amazing tech out there and steppers and servos and positioning and sensors. But, um, you know, we are truly ground up. Like we do everything in house. We don't shop anything out. I think, In the, you know, close to five years we've been doing this, um, we've sent out maybe $30,000 worth of parts for manufacturing. Just one, we just did not want to buy the machine to do one operation. And the other one, the machines we did have, we were running them around the clock, like people sleeping next to the machine and, uh, you know, waking up and, and reloading the machine when it was done. So we just said we need more capacity. And we just, we paid somebody to do it. Besides that, we've actually got amazing machinists on staff. we got a pretty well-kitted-out machine shop. We've got some of the best welders you'll ever come across. So we uh, we focus on the people. You know, you bring in the people that can do it. And uh, when we were, when Jack and I were paying for everything, it was two weeks for a prototype and $500. And now it's two weeks and $5,000. That's the only thing changed, right? You get a little bit more money to spend on prototypes, and uh, but you don't get any more time.
0: Yeah. And I guess you're prototyping a lot of stuff all at once. Of the 27 attachments, how many are, I guess, at a beta operational status? Um, eight right now.
1: So we we, wow. we That's a yeah, lot. yeah 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 yeah. So and uh, you know it, and it it all goes sequentially, right? Like if if you if you look at this, there's no point in me trying to engineer something or engineer a prototype that would have the robot waiting nine days on the job site, right? So right now, we're you know, we're doing early stuff of preparation for the slab. You know, slabs are what they are. They're never flat. They're never straight. They're never plumb, true, and level. They're, they're good or bad. We've got some good slab contractors working through us, through our contract, through our um, – you know, our customer, so they do the best they can, but, um, so, you know, how we date them this slab with equipment and then how we prepare it. And we do some really different technology on the wall system. So we do some drilling automatically. We do scanning, um, post-processing. So we actually cut some of the concrete, um, you know, insulation rolling trusses so some of the stuff that uh we've been doing is all early in the house build and then uh you know as we go along we we have the balance of where something is in the build sequence so that kind of stack order from slab to front door keys all that kind of sequential process and then what's the either the safety aspect or the labor reduction aspect and that's how we kind of prioritize on tools nice i'm
0: in a i'm in a python course right now just to (laughs) keep Mm -hmm. learning stuff. And uh, I've noticed everything goes wrong all the time. (laughs) Uh, Everything, if I try to write too much at once, I can't even figure out what the problem is because there's six different problems. So Mm -hmm. uh, the construction sites I've seen, 3D printed construction sites I've seen, it's kind of similar. It's like an early technology. So they're working, they're figuring stuff out. They're thinking things through and doing things for the first time. Uh, Often they figure out improvements I think pretty much every job set I've seen, they figure out some improvements that day, a whole list of them. Mm -hmm. Uh, So even like the goal is automation eventually as much automation as possible, but to get there is an arduous, uh, challenging engineering feat. Mm -hmm. That is, I think a lot of times left behind the camera because companies want to wait until they have something really, I guess, perfect to show, but can you, Tell any blood, sweat, and tear stories of the challenges behind the scenes? Oh, thousands of them,
1: thousands of them. I think back up to what you said, right? You know, you, everything you do is going to generate problems. And the question becomes is, are you generating problems faster than you're solving? <laughs> right? It's just sometimes yes, sometimes no. Um, somebody smart said to me, you know, if you're not embarrassed by your first effort, you're waiting too long. Right? You're, you're never going to get it perfected in the shop. You're never going to get it perfected in the lab. You know, in our production yard, you go out to the field with it, go out to the field and, you know, no equipment survives first contact with its its field role. But we've gotten really good at that. We've gotten really good at at saying, okay, um, you know, this is uh, this is at 60 percent. Let's go see. Will it hurt anybody? Okay, no. All right. As long as it won't hurt anybody, let's go try it. I can knock down a wall. I'll rebuild the wall. I can bend a part on the machine. I'll make a new part, but I just can't hurt people. Right. So, um, you know, so getting that early contact with process and with product is key, you know, and, uh, I have some great stories like we trust lifting, you know, we're, we're, we're putting trust lifting in, and that was a really quick prototype tool and, um, doing it kind of uniquely. Right. So we have some IP around it, but, um, first job, the, uh, the guys who were framing a house next to us, we finished a house. So they were doing a roof next to us. They, uh, they were like, Oh my God, that's amazing. That's fun. Right. You know, and and we rolled trusses in about three hours and didn't need to bring a crate on site. Didn't do that. And, uh, and we learned a bunch of stuff. We just learned, Hey, how do you engage with the trust? How do you, you know, stability and all of those things. But, um, you know, on the downside, you know, pick anything we've ever done, you know, we were, we, give you a little insight. We started a house June 6th and got us tipping of occupancy August 10th. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, wow. in that, in that time um, we were printing at 116, 118 degrees. Right. And uh, you know, running, running shifts, um, pretty long shifts and a lot of dedicated kind of our operations team. We call uh, the guys out in the field, we call them industrial athletes. Cause it really is like, it's an understatement to call them at a production associate or a machine operator. These guys are, top-level athletes to be out in the field and to do what they do and and you know it's a team out there but um you know so printing through dust storms or working through and, and taking pauses for lightning you know oh she's got a bunch of rules like there's lightning anywhere in the air you got to stop you know we're sitting there with big giant grounding rods sticking up out of the ground and uh so you know going through that weather and, and learning how to care for people first and then the machine you know the machine was built pretty well um, but how do you stage people and how do you give those people rest breaks and how do you, how do you do those things? So that was, that was a big learning process. And, um, you know, the fun part of that is, is everybody came out of that stronger. We, we have still a lot of the original people that we brought in for these industrial athlete roles. They're still on a team and they're, they're psyched as hell. You know, they own a part of the company and, um, they're just like, let's go, let's build. And, uh, so, you know, those are the type of things, but on equipment, yeah, you could, Point to any piece of equipment and we've we've broken it we've twisted it we got it wrong but uh you know again it's it's how quick you react and how quick you can walk away from something that's just not going to work
0: Do, does the thickness and height which are both particularly large on your system of the layers mm-hmm. uh help with the
1: printing and heat environments yeah yeah you, you know it's it's interesting because we're actually you know we we use pretty large aggregate um we're, we're quite differently with how we do that extrusion i don't want to talk down and through that too much but you know our our layers are two and a half inches wide two and a half inches thick and and we think there's plenty of room to move on that um in either dimension um so it definitely helps but um you know because it's really just machine cycles if, if i wanted to lay down a half inch layer i'm gonna lay down 200 layers to get to uh you know a foot high wall Right. So it was it was chosen. We thought that was optimal size to kind of build but be able to handle things. Um, so, you know, concrete's a tough material. Concrete's tough in the heat. It's a living material. You know, we recognize it's uh, it's one of the most studied materials on the planet, but it definitely is. It, it's alive and it reacts and it reacts to its environment and. We think we've figured out a way to have concrete cooperate us. We're never going to beat concrete into submission. You're you're not going to beat Mother Nature. You're not going to beat chemistry. But we uh, we get the concrete to cooperate and do what we need to do, and that's part of the wall structure, and it's part of how we've engineered the equipment. And that's the one thing is we're truly materials agnostic. Um, we basically roll up to a quarry and we just go get a sized grade material and we get a concrete sand. We don't need any special ash, you know, we use fly ash as a, as a, you know, greenhouse gas offset, but we don't need any special volcanic ash. You know, I, I know a lot of people out there doing amazing stuff, but some of the mortars that they need to use and where are they trucking it and all the things you've asked people on your interviews, right? Is like, Hey, where is this material coming from and how much does it cost? And I'm like, pick a quarry in a 30 minute radius at a house. I'll send a guy there. He'll, he'll whip out our spec sheet and that afternoon, I'll have dump trucks rolling and, and, you know, rear dumping 25 tons of material, and we're off to the races. When I hear I mean, that to me, it means
0: batch plant mixer.
1: Um, something like that, yeah. Yeah, we do we do batches, right? And, um, you know, obviously, because the conditions change during the day, and we, we've dialed that in pretty well. And, and most people are doing that. And I see the guys who are, who are doing continuous pumping and, and different stuff and some of the equipment that you guys have shown, um, you know, Kudos to them. That stuff is hard, like rolling process changes are not easy. So those those folks are out there doing hard things. We do it a little bit differently. But at the end of the day, um, we always said concrete is a very, very globally utilized material on a very local scale. Rock is different from every quarry. Sand is slightly different from every quarry. Um, we actually started out throwing Sacrete in the machine, and like I said, I, I give people the challenge. If, if my guys were up to it and I had the time, I'd, I'd bring a skid of um, Sacrete in from Home Depot, and I would bet after the third mix, my operators would have it dialed in and get the strength and have it coming out of the machine. They, they would know how to do it, and we have enough process history and process control that if I wanted to, I could use Sacrete, but too expensive. And we don't want to yeah, have that sounds bags. promising.
0: And right yeah. now your strategy is mostly operating the equipment. Uh, will you be selling printers to builders?
1: No, or... no. no, never. No, you know, our, our, our thesis is if you look at the home building cycle, there's three major parts there is there's the dirt part dirt to kind of, you know, get a plat. So you get your layout, you get all your approvals. You so you what what house you're going to put on what plot. You have the build cycle, so you go from dirt to front door keys, and then you have the sales cycle. And you look at those three cycles, the sales cycle is super hard, right? You've got to get potential homeowners, get them cleared, get their loan to value ratios, your debt. Hey, call this medical debt and get this taken off your credit report, right? The the home builders are amazing at driving those relationships. And especially the one we're working with, you know, they, they drive those relationships. They get people in houses. That is a very high touch business. And for me to, to say I'm going to be an engineering company and do that would be crazy, right? They really have that dialed in the sales cycle and, and the marketing, and they know what people want to buy and the architectural aesthetics. So we stay away from the front end of that customer. And then on the back end, the easiest way to go broke is to speculate on dirt and say, hey, I'm going to buy this cotton field out here in Arizona, and I'm going to convert it. But, you know, that can take two years. That can take five years. That may never happen with water rights. So, um, we let the home builders play the, you know, the, the, the dirt and development game to go, look, they know what amenities people want in the community. They understand proximity to who's building what new factory. So they do that front end, and, and we come in in that middle. We get bookended, and we say, look, once you have that plat, the community design, what houses you want to build, give us the house design. We'll take that house design because it's not my thing to tell them architectural aesthetics. They say, here's your 1,600-square-foot plan. I'm going to say, hey, I'm going to move these six walls. I'm going to make this a little narrower, this a little wider. Here's your same plan. Two out of 100 people would notice the differences, right? But we have to change it. Obviously, you, you know what construction looks like on, on 3D-printed walls. Some are double-white, some are triple-white. So we don't tell them about what their architecture is. That's not my job. We just tell them, this is how I'll build your architecture. And, uh, and then we go and we take it from dirt, and we build it, and we hand them back front door keys. And that's that's our business model is uh is doing that and the idea with that is to own the equipment put the equipment in the field train the people and um and be able to have those home builders turn on and off our capacity as needed so
0: when they uh specify a need for a vertical load column for a truss Mm -hmm. uh, how do you solve that
1: you know it's interesting um every wall we build is a load-bearing wall We don't build non-load-bearing walls, so um, in in our wall construction, which you've got a lot of strong IP suite around it, uh, we've done some really neat things in the wall that every load's a load-bearing wall, so when I I take a house and I'll, you know, take any of the, the big name brand builders that we all know and love, right? We just take their plan and they say, look, this is going to be on this size foundation. It's got this building setback lines. Um, we go through and we have a, a couple of amazing, you know, we have an architect on staff, structural engineers on staff, a couple of solid people like that. But we we work with a, um, a really tight knit crew of um, outside firms. They're all professional engineers and, and they know how our walls are built. So they go, okay, I'm going to build all these walls. Here's a sliding glass door. Here's the garage. This is how your wall will handle that. And it really is just Kind of they they just pull out of the Diamond Age toolbox and say, this is the wall you need to support that load. And then, you know, um, again, my partner, Paul, says we're just different from slab to top plate. You know, so in between the slab and the top plate, we're different. From the top plate of the house up, we're the same. It's roof trusses. It's all of the HVAC. And from the slab down, you know, out here in the deserts out west, all the slabs are post-tension because of expansive soil. So we're just different in between right now.
0: Are you running utilities through the slab pre-construction?
1: Um, just drains, just you know, just water and drain. We, uh, you know, we we do all of our electric in the wall, so so everything's buried in the wall. I don't know if you've uh, if you've seen this this is out there. If you go look for it, you can find this kind of the Matterport view of the Diamond Age House. Um, you know, honestly, the 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 interesting thing is if you walk in a Diamond Age House, you can't tell. Can't tell. Uh, that's that's the idea. Is like, I, I I think people need to. To have familiarity you know people we look at it and it's it's funny i just say look this there's apartments right around where our our factory is our shop is and i go look the narrative is the the young family that's in an apartment you know they pull up the early pregnancy test it's got the blue sign and they're like wow we're in a two bedroom one bath where's my mom going to stay when she comes to help us right and that's the driving event people go now i need a three bed two bath right and uh and you know we're we're trying to build for those folks. We're trying to build that that first house in this country. And and, you know, Jack's got that that really special um drive in saying, look People used to be in their mid 20s when they got their first house. Now it's driving to mid into late 30s and you lose 10 years of appreciation. You lose 10 years of that compound interest on that capital that you've spent on a house. Most people don't own a lot. That's an appreciating asset. Cars are not appreciating assets, right? Furniture, but homes and stocks, right? So the the problem that we're trying to solve is get people back into their mid-20s when they can afford their first house, because in this country, you know, most people's retirement plan is their house. right? Mm -hmm. And uh, so, you know, until you can put enough product in the market to help change prices, that's going to just either stay the same or get worse.
0: So are you achieving that continuous vertical load with the backfill of a different kind of material or some foam crete insulatory structure we're
1: we're we're a composite wall structure so there's Mm -hmm. a there's a bunch of patents around that and um it's a little bit different but we've just we've found a way to take a few different components from different parts of of masonry and, and panelized construction and um you know put it together in a way that flows really well from an automation standpoint that is very familiar to building inspectors i mean i'm I'm out here, like I said, I've already gone through two different, I've built in two different municipalities already, and we just educate them. They're all, they're all great people, but a building inspector's job is to provide life safety um, conformance, right? At the end of the day, building inspectors, their primary job is not to worry if the house is leaky on air. Right. Their primary job is to make sure that house doesn't fall down in a, in a big windstorm or a big snow load or a hurricane. Right. That's why building codes exist is to protect life safety. So, um, you know, we've put this wall system together. We educate them on, hey, this is the this is a little kind of this is the child of these two or three different texts put together. Here's all the calculations. Here's all the loads. Here's the professional engineer stamp. From that third-party engineer, so that that engineer is certifying this wall structure will hold up to these 145, 150 mile-an-hour winds, will hold up to this seismic load, and uh, you know, that's where we've really, really succeeded. Is we bring in the the inspectors, we educate them, and we work right alongside them. And uh, there's no special exceptions for us. You know, we just show up and we're another builder. We're weird, but we're another builder. So we still have to, you know, we still have to roll up with PE stamps, and we still have to build how we say we're going to build.
0: How has the uh insurance hurdle been?
1: Um, insurance has been pretty good. You know, again, it's it's all about getting out there, getting in front of it. Um, you know, job site insurance and all that, we're we're construction, we're doing some stuff. So, you know, we have those same workman comps that all the other contractors would run to. We have our safety program and all my guys have gone through OSHA ten training and some on OSHA forty and you know, the, the typical things you do to run a, a contracting business. And then um, homeowners insurance? Um, homeowners, you know, we're educating people and there's a, there's a great level of interest from the insurers and then the reinsurers, the people that insure the insurance companies, um, because they see this as a, a, a departure from what they know. And, um, they're really, really interested in it. They, they see all the structural engineering, ca- engineering calculations and go, okay, um, all of our testing that we've done and they go, look, this is a really interesting product. They just don't know how to take it yet.
0: Yeah, I'm sure they want to come up with a number. They want to do business. Uh, mm-hmm. It's hard to come up with that number, I guess, for a new problem. Um,
1: yeah, but, you know, they just look around and they go, hey, you know, uh, at the end of the day, that's a CMU. It's a masonry block home to them, right? So they know what that house looks like. So that's kind of the categories we're in right now. And uh, But we think long term that as as we get out there and, and we do some more education that, um, you know, we think about the problems you see all wildfires and you see everybody that lives at that, um, that urban wildlife interface. That's where all your fires are. You know, you look in LA and all up through the West is that there's a potential here to say, all right, change some roof materials, uh, to less flammable and, you know, get, um, fire rated doors and windows that don't look like the pull down gate on a deli, right? You know, get something that's architecturally nice. And, and you looked at a Gulf coast, there's some stuff like that for storm shutters. Um, we think we can easily get to a two hour fire rated house. Mm-hmm.
0: So right now you're working on building a, a group of homes in Arizona. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it that's separate from the 72 unit project
1: or? Uh, yeah. So we, we, we've done, um, We've done one quick demo project Is again, uh, the, the builder we're working with is just absolutely amazing. They just have, have been the best partner, and they really see where this tech helps, helps them get more people into homes. Um, so... We came out, um, and again, you know, we have the same inertia to other people as getting permits, getting plats, getting all of the connections ready. So we came out, we built a a group of small, a a small group of houses just as that quick turn demonstration. Um, Now we're building out a whole community of 48 houses and then on the heels of this one. So mid to late summer, we'll be done with this. And uh, we'll go to another community that, you know, the, the, the full community can be up to 600 units. Um, you know, and our contractual agreement is for 72 of them, but, you know, um, from what the builder is seeing and what the public is, is feeding back on this, you know, they'll reward us for our performance. That's all I got to say. They, uh, they like us, they trust us and they're great partners. So as we perform, they'll just, uh, they'll reward that, you know, and, and good performance equals more work.
0: Yeah. It's good to have scalable opportunities like that. Uh Um, That's awesome i gotta tell you i was driving back from california from a video i shot with uh, a group out there and i was driving through Eloy, Mm -hmm. so i had to do a couple laps around to try to see if i could figure out where the where your printed homes are Mm -hmm. i couldn't find them i don't know if they (laughs) they blend in too much i was looking at the pictures comparing a few times i thought maybe that's it but maybe the garage is on the other side i can't really tell
1: you know, we're, we're, we're kind of a we're kind of a show not tell. We don't we don't talk a lot, um, you know, and, and, and we just do that because institutionally we just keep our head down and keep doing what we're doing. And, um, you know, let the market decide. Right. Let the market decide on what we're doing. And right, right now the market is saying they love us. Um, but. I'm one bad mistake away from them not loving us. So I just I keep focused on that. I know a lot of other people um, have been doing stuff. So um, you'll see a lot more. It's it's out there. If you go if you go through who I'm partnered with, it's all that information is available online. You Just got to click a couple times. You'll find it.
0: Yeah, I'll always be doing a lot of clicking. Uh, (laughs) Will you have any public facing events or demonstrations coming up Um...
1: in the future? I'm not sure. Like, you know, I, 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 let, I let Jack handle that side of the house. Sure, um, yeah. You know, again, for us, it's, it's build the product that the folks want. You know, and those, those folks are the, the home builders because they have the pulse of the home buyers. I, I can't even begin to assume to know what they know about home buyers in the market and the mortgage rates and buying down points and all those things. So I just let those experts and, and, and they may end up doing some stuff. Right. And, uh, you know, I'll support whatever they want to do, but you know, uh, unless they ask me to say, look, like, you know, we, uh, we'll do some, we've done some trades days. Like, so when we do this right now, you know, we're working with a lot of the home builders trades to finish stuff that we haven't pulled in house yet, which we will. Um, so you bring in, you bring in all the trades and say, look, this is, this is the weird cousin of CMU. This is how you're going to work with it. If you build concrete block houses, this is just 10% weirder. Right. And, uh, so we've, we've done events like that, but it, it really is, um, it's really focused on just Maximum efficiency for the time that we have. We're small compared to a lot of the folks out there. Um, we're going. I think the velocity we have is just absolutely incredible. So those things end up being distractions. I want people to know about it, but at the end of the day, the home builders know about it. They think it's a product they need. They think we fit in really well to that attainable housing um, market where getting those first-time home buyers in, and uh, and I, don't, I let them handle that. I don't want to. I don't want to get out in front of them because that I would just, I would crash that. Like they do it really well. That's their business through recessions, through downturns. So um, I let them handle that side of the business. They, uh, they're just amazing at it. So why even try?
0: Yeah, that seems smart. It's a beast of its own. And mm-hmm. uh, if they've tamed it, then let that be.
1: Yeah, yeah like I said, these, these folks are all, you know, top 10 home builders, top 20. They've all ridden through recessions. You know, these folks turn out 10 to 90,000 houses a year. For me to assume I know how to represent that better is just that's ignorance. So I just I, I stay out of their way and uh, and you know again this all comes back to the feedback. What do they need to show? So they need to show their sales agents. Okay, we do a we do a you know a uh, a walkthrough with their sales agents. They need inspectors. They need um, their finance people. Their insurance people. We, we focus on that and and they do all the outward facing.
0: Yeah, and if there is a downturn with rates increasing uh, mm-hmm. that just gives you guys more opportunity to fine tune. I mean, you got eight of the 27 uh, components beta mm-hmm. tested now, maybe at that point you got 27 or maybe you figured out you only need 20, uh, whatever.
1: But I think the thesis on that is, is the home builders know, like the demand is never going away, right? The the demand spikes, like rates are killing everybody right now, you know, and that, that'll, that'll do what it does. I have zero predictive ability on that. But at the end of the day, Population of the country continues to grow, family creation continues to happen, you know, and you, you see that you have two, three generation households, you know, children, parents and grandparents because of housing costs. And uh, they know that they have to ride through it. And the unfortunate thing that, you know, looking backwards, you saw in 2008 downturn was 400,000 people left the trades and never came back. Wow. They went to drive trucks, they went to Costco, they went to work in factories, they retired early. So if this downturn is short, it shouldn't be too bad. If this downturn is is a little more extended, they'd lose another 50, 200, 300,000 people out of the trades. And that's just less people to build houses. Less labor means higher cost of house and less production. And it just, it drives all the people at the entry point of the market out, right? So, you know, for us, they, they see us as as the ability to, To provide supply. I mean, this is a, it's a pretty straight supply and demand equation to a certain point. You know, there's a huge demand, but at the entry level point of the market, you know, there's only so many people that can afford a house that costs $250 a square foot. You know, if you're building a 2000 square foot house and that's a $450,000 house, right? That is really not entry level anymore. You know, so we're, we're focused on being much Closer to that entry point of, you know, whatever, whatever to my home builders are selling for, um, you know, we work at market rate for them and let them let them put that house in the market for what they think they can sell it for.
0: Given your insider understanding of Tesla and uh, obvious expertise with construction robotics, would you be implementing their Optimus bot on uh, Diamond Age construction
1: site? You know, I I, I I look at all of that stuff, and, and we've got some amazing roboticists here, like a couple of guys that just, uh, you know, uh, that, that that top 30, under 30, I would consider them in robotics of the entire world. Um, it's not the right tool. It's, you know, it, something like that, like Honda had Ibo or something a couple of years ago, you know, putting up sheetrock, doing different things like that. Mm-hmm. It's like um, people want to see robots that look like humans, but at the end of the day, um Most robots are pretty simplistic. You know, you see the, we use the automotive style six axis arm, right? You know, because it's easy. It's off the shelf. We buy it, we program it. I'm not going to build that. Um, But we use that and then we figure the process out how to be um, able to handle that six axis robots reach. It's payload and, you know, how do I nail with a, a robotic arm like that? Or how do I spray stucco with a robotic arm like that? So just, use the tools out there um but uh the android bots the balance i mean boston dynamics is absolutely an amazing company you know with with all the robots they did they've done um but again i can solve that solution for picking up a piece of sheetrock or picking up a window i can solve that with an off-the-shelf robotic arm with the right payload and reach and i don't need to to mirror what a human looks like true
0: the only utility that makes a little bit of sense to me is right now it's built the way construction is done is organized for humans to mm-hmm. do Yeah. so that's one benefit but they're all requiring cranes or some type of way to lift things move things reach ladders uh mm-hmm. so a gantry system that has the entire build volume enclosed and can reach every
1: corner mm-hmm. uh seems like why yeah, couldn't yeah. it do and just, you just you reorganize the build process like you know do you, do you get to a point where the, the the roof diaphragm is the one of the last things that goes on the house so you leave uh, the house open to access now you have to have, protect the house from weather as you're building stuff but at the end of the day people are gonna anybody in this space that goes beyond just making walls um is gonna have to learn how to build in a different sequence and to protect that exposed building environment Um, until you get that that roof diaphragm on and get that house dried in. So that's a challenge we're dealing with, but we think we've got a pretty dedicated path on that.
0: Right now, you're sticking closely to what the home builders want in terms of output. Mm -hmm. Uh, Is there another path where you optimize for how the robot can build in maybe the most cost-effective manner, ignoring the output?
1: Oh, absolutely. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you know, at the end of the day, um, it's a trust relationship. So once the, and I think we have that right now, and like I said, trust takes forever to, to gain and then it, it evaporates in a second. So just very, very focused on making sure that, that my customers, um, truly understand what we're doing and, and, and that we stay within their boundaries. But, um, yeah, the, the the you know, if you call that take a car factory, it's called stack order, right? You know, you, you can't put a wheel on before you put a disc brake on, right? So that's in, that's something you can't violate in stack order, but I can put window glass in before I put the door seal around the door opening. So that's a stack order you can move around in the process or I can put the emblem on a trunk lid. Before I put the wheels on, there's no inner relationship with that. So that allows me to to move those things around in that stack order. And and there's a decent amount of stack freedom you have in a house. But, you know, obviously, I'm not going to paint before I put stucco on, right? That's just dumb. But, um, you know, where can you pull electric? Where can you pull your utilities? Um, you know, how do you do those things? So there is some ability to change that stack order to be more accommodating to automation. And that's that's part of the game. And it's not real hard to figure out. Just have to figure out how you use those tools how you you drive that product to to be able to accommodate the the stack order and you know my partner paul says it all the time he's like there is for any operation there is a minimum number of steps to do it operation x takes 21 steps then we're the most efficient at it if we hit 21 if i hit 45 well i got it done but i'm wasting a lot of time so we kind of look at the house build as what is the minimum number of steps to get it done and how close can we get to that
0: Yeah, if you got the robot working like if it could do every task in one second then you would just be waiting on the inspector all the time
1: yeah and you know the interesting thing is is coming from i've i've had a pretty fun manufacturing ride but you know i've built things that made 16 parts a second right and i've built stuff that you know you build one part every eight days You mentioned Um, something with a factory with five million
0: units of output
1: yeah like bottles like like bottling packaging so like gatorade things like that like run gatorade machines that 16 bottles a second right you know just can't see it um but you know you look at this and and you go into a car factory and like it's interesting um you have car fact you have um car builders and coach builders you know the the high-end cars like maseratis bugattis those are all coach builders those are hand those are bespoke right? And then you go to Ford and Tesla, and then you go to the, you go to the entry-level market, like the Kings or your Kias and your Hyundais, those guys are the king of assembly. You know, they build cars with 52 second cycle times. Like the operators, as a car goes down the assembly and the operator has to do its operation or you know, their operation in 52 seconds, they've got to put it. Interesting. In. You didn't
0: mention Toyota.
1: Um, you know, Toyota's amazing. Like Toyota's absolutely amazing, but um, you know, just I, I, I grew up under the Toyota production system, even in bottling factories. Everybody understands that system. Um, so it's just whatever name you want. All the car builders these days are amazing. Still sure. honest, they're, they're all really like and, – and the differentiators are single digits, like, you know, a Toyota to a Hyundai to, um, you know, even to – you know, Ford, GM, all of those guys, the the differentiation is single digit percentage in like operating efficiency and quality. So it's just absolutely amazing. But like I said, you look at the entry level of the market and you got 54 seconds to put a window in a front door, whether you do it with a robot or whether you do it with a human. And then, you know, at Tesla, we were running 120, 112 second cycles on Model S and Model X. When I look at a robot, I go, look, you know, if it takes me nine minutes to put a window in and I have nine windows in the house, that's not really bad. You know, it's I don't have to be down. I don't have to move really fast. I don't have to have that lightning precision of loading a piece of sheet metal into a stamping press and then barely missing the robot as I grab it, just as the press is opening up and, and risk crushing the robot. That's factory output. We don't have to do that. We have more, you know, minute cycle times. And uh, so it allows you to, do things a little bit more deliberately and uh you know so it's, it's just a different environment when you think about it um how people are going to take these things from just day shift operations to around the clock operations we have a pretty dedicated path to do that right you just you know I'm, I'm building pretty expensive robots and everybody else out in the field is building pretty expensive printers and uh you want to utilize that machine around the clock otherwise it's just a pretty big capital expense boat anchor when it's not running is there
0: anything uh interesting we can talk about when it comes to the software like how does the robot see the house over Mm -hmm. the time of the product is there an as built that's maintained in the does in a brain or something
1: Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely like so we've actually we write all our own software so i know uh, i i I assume just from what i see and a lot of from your videos and some other stuff folks are out there using g-code and slicers a lot um early on we said that was not the way to run a robotic system i mean we use G-code in our machine shop, from five-axis, three-axis, machi- you know, mills and lathes and all that. And, you know, we write G-code all day. Mm-hmm. Um, we actually wrote our own custom software suite here, a multi-level custom software suite, because this becomes a a very, very big part of scaling. You know, this is this is going to be a software driven. It is right now. It's a software driven company. My my software team is my biggest team in my company, and um, we don't think that g-code and slicer really solves it so we we have our own bespoke software um we've got over amazingly smart people writing code and um but you know think about that at the end of the day in 2026 home builder x who builds 8,000 homes a year is going to say diamond age you know jack russell here's a 300 home order i'm going to say okay give me the lot layouts give me the prints i'm going to need some sort of um, ingestion process to just take a, a plan out of Bluebeam or Revit or AutoCAD and run that all the ways down to robot instructions with no human touch. Because, you know, if you if you want to impact this market, you need to build 1,000, 5,000, 10,000 houses a year. There's no way I'm going to have a, a really good CAD operator or a structural engineer go, hey, let me see this new floor plan X. And, okay, I'll convert this floor plan X into the machine language needed. Can't do that you know, when you're doing it that level. Um, So, you know, that's where we're working with the software to actually just ingest from an agnostic program. Like I said, whether it's Revit, Bluebeam, AutoCAD, whatever people are handing us and get that robot pathing, get that bill of materials um, and then get the sequence of operations all automatically. You know, and I think that's, um, that's not going to solve with kind of G code and slicer solutions. I don't know. I'm not working on that end. So I'm, I'm really talking outside of something I know, but I'm, owned and run dozens of 3D printers and program G code back in, you know, many, many years have done a lot of G code and different stuff. Um, for what we have to do with the robot and perception, <clears throat> you said, like, how does the robot know where it is? How does the robot know if there's a person on this lab and does it need to run slower because there's a person near it, right? Those type of things, you need a pretty significant software stack to do that. And I think we're we're uniquely positioned that we, we write that code and, and um, we're pretty good at it.
0: So I guess some of the shortcomings of G-code were the interferences with the or changing the toolpath mid-project. Uh.
1: Um, you know, g code's actually good at that. Like, because if you think about it, you throw a hunk of aluminum in a milling machine, and that milling machine will go and sense the the edges, the corners, the top surface, and then adapt the program to that. But um, like I said, I'm not we're not working in that, so I can only I can only infer. But you know, at the end of the day, is that having g-code talk to a camera and having that camera say hey what has to happen here where are my obstacles what are my interest points where are my intersections of vertical wall surfaces and wall and floor Hmm. and wall and ceiling i don't have a clear understanding of how you do that in g-code i bet you guys out there that do or that at least have identified that and say how we do it but i it's not intuitive to us so you know we, we just like I said, we uh, we don't pretend to be experts in that, but we look at it and we go, we think there's some significant hurdles in that, but I, I bet you there's other smart people out there working on it.
0: Yeah, and there's all kinds of different, I know your equipment uses LIDAR as well, so that's not going to output G-code, mm-hmm. uh, getting all those things working together.
1: Yeah. Then that's that's a big software play, and there's a lot of people doing amazing things with lidar, right? Like you know, you look at it, and um, so that's that's again where I can go adopt, and I can license tech. Like I I don't want to I want to own the whole stack of what we build. I just don't want to have to create it all. And if someone has a good solution, as long as my software team understands it and can talk to it and write the API calls and all the fun stuff to pull information and push information back to it, we'll uh, we use off the shelf tech all the time.
0: Interesting. And so on the flip side of that, if another 3D printing company, one of the other brands said, Hey, we really like your trust placing system. Can we order one of those for our system, our machine? Uh, would you, um,
1: you know, I, I honestly, I, I think we have enough of a, a, of a mountain to climb that I'm, you know, like, yeah, but you're not even trying
0: to sell printers, so you wouldn't want to.
1: No, no, it. I probably wouldn't want to do that, right? Like I said, you know, some some point in the future, maybe, but um, at the end of the day, I think it's it's just really, um, it's stay head down on the product, stay head down on the product, the equipment, you know, and, and, and get the machines out in the field and be able to move them really fast and set them up, and be able to train a large number of people that you're going to need to run these things. You know, and you you start thinking about this, um, this this becomes a military sized problem. You want to go build 30,000 houses. You're going to need a lot of people to do that, even with robotics.
0: Yeah, definitely. Uh, And it's good to see this technology gets a lot more young people excited about construction than Mm -hmm. other construction sites. And so it's not as difficult to train the next generation to get involved. I'm sure you're experiencing that as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna have to finish. I got to jump after this, but um, yeah, that's that's a big thesis of what we've done. Only about a third of the people that we have on our team and our industrial athletes are actually from the construction space. You know, we're we're bringing people in. Um, the military's absolutely been amazing. You know, Diamond Age is a super supporter of all the vets that have, have done amazing things for our country out there. Um, you know. You, you can't throw a stick without hitting a marine or a navy guy or an army guy here, and uh, and they're incredibly well trained, incredibly motivated. They understand the team environment. Um, you know the the funny, sad thing is out here that just it's another it's a different sandbox they're used to working in from the last couple of years. We have a lot of combat vets, and they're like, hey, I'm used to sand, I'm used to hot, and if no one's shooting at me, it's a good day. So you know, but uh, but we've we've had some some. Real good luck, in, you know, from people all over, from the software world, from the robotics world, people that would not traditionally look at construction. We've been pretty fortunate that um, the mission connects with people, um, the company culture connects with people, and and the freedom to put your thumbprint, your DNA, into an early company that has the ability to to go put lots of people into their first home people love that so um we've been doing really good at attracting people and there's still plenty more that we're going to bring into the industry but that that's part of this is not only homes but good jobs you know, we really want to focus on having people that want to come out and people that love to work with their hands and create. You're not only just carrying bundles of shingles and, and using an air nailer, you're loading a robot. You're learning how to calibrate a robot. You're disassembling that robot and moving it 100 feet, so you have this kind of feature-rich job that keeps people engaged and gets them learning, and I think that's key. You know, give people a, a job that's meaningful to them, and they will, they will suffer through 118 degrees, and then right now every morning it's 33 degrees. So, you know, they, they've got the spectrum, but... So no, Jared, this has been great. Um, really, really enjoyed. It. I got to jump off. I got another commitment right now, but uh, we'll talk again soon, and probably have you out to the site maybe at the beginning of the year. But uh, I love what you guys are doing out there. Uh, you know, I got. A tremendous amount of respect for all the other folks, all the, all my worthy rivals out in the field. I don't consider anybody a competitor, right? There's enough business here to uh, to keep us all busy until we all drop dead. And, uh, but so a lot of people doing a lot of really hard things, and um, you know that that's the exciting spot is to see what people are doing and to uh, and to see people saying, "Hey, we all want to put people in houses." Yeah, that's so true. Thank you so much, man, for no,
0: joining me no today. Problem. If somebody wants to work at Diamond Age, they can click on the link in the description and reach out to you guys. Uh Absolutely. Really looking forward to the next opportunity we get to chat. I know you don't do a lot of media events. No. I'm not the media. I'm a citizen journalist.
1: So it's good. I, I, I know you are. I know you. And keep doing it. Keep doing it. Re- enjoy All right. It. Thank you, All man. Right. Later on. Thanks, Jared. Take it easy. Bye-bye.